Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome in on back to the Blitz on the Balcony podcast presented by Brews on the Balcony. I am Zach Zook and first off I gotta apologize, no show last week, uh, hopefully you saw the tweet we put out on Twitter uh, announcing that there would be no show. Memorial Day weekend I was traveling back to uh, Illinois to see my family who I hadn't seen since uh Christmas, my sister and my brother both graduating under quarantine, so it was good to get back to uh, to see them. So that was why there was no show last week, but we got a big show this week, and we're going to keep it rolling. Uh, we, we're going to lead the, the podcast talking about something that's a little bit more serious, uh, the Rooney Rule alteration proposal, and we're going to cover it, you know, as uh, neutral as possible, but I'm also going to give you kind of my opinion on it. I just... Uh, we I like to talk about just football on this show. I feel like um, that's what people come for. You know, you can if you want to hear somebody's take about you know morality, you can go somewhere else and find that. Everybody's given their opinion on that. I think that uh, people typically watch sports and watch football to get away from that. However, it is the biggest story in the last two weeks, and I feel like it would just be obvious that we're ignoring it. So we're going to lead the show talking about that. But then we, I, I, we'll get into the Taysom Hill report. Uh, Jay Glazer reported that Taysom Hill is going to be the guy in 2021. Uh, if you didn't know, this is likely going to be uh, Drew Brees' final season as the New Orleans Saints starting quarterback as he's going to be making the switch to NBC and into the booth after this fall. Then we'll talk a little bit about the string of arrests that happened in the NFL with Corey, I think it's Corey Latimer. I I might be butchering his first name, but with Latimer and then uh, Quentin Dunbar and DeAndre Baker, uh, also, uh, Ed Oliver, I think in trouble. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Mainly the Dunbar Baker, uh, arrest is kind of what I wanted to talk about, but how that I think is a microcosm for what has been going on. And then some draft considerate, some considerations for playing this fall during coronavirus in this new world that we're in, how it's different in college football than it's going to be in the pros, how they're operating kind of on different playing fields. Then to wrap it up, we'll finish up with our draft coverage of uh, the North, the NFC North and the AFC North. But before we do any of that, I want to lead the show talking about the Rooney Rule alteration proposal. And for those of you that don't know, it has dominated the headlines over the last week or two. But the proposal that is going to be voted on was that if you hired a person of color or a minority coach, that you would be able to move up 10 spots in the third round. And I think that hit the internet. Uh, I think Schefter reported it about a week and a half ago now. And there was, you know, as you can imagine, very strong reactions and opinions to it on both sides. And I'll give you the facts before I give you my opinions. And that is, you know, if you hire a person of color, you could move up in theory, 10 spots in the third round. It's it's pretty cut and dry, the facts of it. Now, the impact of it and why I'm against this is wide-ranging and multifaceted. And I really love how the Chargers head coach, Anthony Lynn, he, he had a quote and said, sometimes you can, you know, try and, and I don't, I don't want to misrepresent his quote too bad, but the 
But the general gist of what he was saying was sometimes you can try and do the the wrong thing by attempting to fix you by by attempting to do the right thing, you can do the wrong thing, right? And I think that that's pretty spot on. Have you guys ever seen the movie SWAT that came out in the early 2000s with uh, Samuel L. Jackson and uh, Jeremy Renner was in it? And the the captain is like, he, he says, you know, sometimes doing the right thing just ain't doing the right thing. And I feel like that's kind of how this rule proposal comes off. I think it is the wrong answer to solve an existing and very real issue. And uh, again, this is from my admittedly limited perspective on this, right? Like I I always preface, you, you have to always preface these conversations with, you know, I'm just a white dude. That's really all it is. So I can't speak on anything else, right? I can only speak from my very limited perspective. And what I can say and acknowledge is that there is 100% this issue in professional sports. And if you're denying that at this point, then I don't know what to tell you. Uh, The Donald Sterling example in the NBA is very recent history and should be enough uh, to, to think that all 32 owners in the NFL, not one of them has tendencies that are at least in part similar to Sterling's, if not as outward and uh, brash, I think that's naive. And I think a very good recent example of this and why this has been brought to the forefront is Eric Bieniemy, who has been uh, an offensive coordinator and collaborator with the Kansas City Chiefs for a while now, and he's been up for jobs the past couple of seasons, and for whatever reason, just hasn't been offered one. And meanwhile, you have, you know... The, this string of hires that has been the fallout of Sean McVay's success and Kyle Shanahan's success, where we're hiring Cliff Kingsbury, we're hiring Matt LaFleur, we're hiring Zach Taylor, oh, quarterback coach of the Rams, he coached under McVay for a season, yeah, come on over here and coach the Bengals. So I think that this issue is what has brought about the discussion of compensation for hiring a person of color or a minority into a coaching staff position. So thinking about it, though, again, from my limited perspective, most people, and again, it's typically the GMs that are making the call on this. Uh, The owner can be involved in hiring the head coach or the higher executive of that the general manager reports to can be involved in hiring the head coach. And every team is structured differently. Like Kyle Shanahan chose John Lynch to be the GM, not the other way around. You know, John Gruden chose Mike Mayock to be the GM. The hierarchy of power is different in every organization. But at the organizational level, especially when we're talking about coordinators and position coaches, uh typically these guys want to win and that supersedes everything, right? And I'm not denying that there's people out there that may overlook somebody for a position for something as arbitrary and ridiculous as the color of your skin 
or your the background you were brought up in. I'm not denying that those people don't exist, but on aggregate, these guys are in jobs that are very highly volatile and have very high turnover. So they're incentivized to win. And that is typically, again, on aggregate, the sole purpose, whether, you know, you're white, you know, brown, purple, orange, green, that is the the primary objective when you're hiring a quarterback coach, an offensive line coach, an offensive coordinator. And so typically, again, it depends on, I'm not denying that there's not these people out there, but in, in the functional organizations, the successful organizations, that is what you're being evaluated on. Uh, and in addition to that, the compensation to move up 10 spots in the third round, and kind of where I'm going with this is, even if I, w- like, let's say I have, you know, a, a white person that I'm up for this quarterback coaching job and a minority up for a quarterback coaching job, and I think that maybe the white guy is a little bit better suited for the job than the minority, but the the league is then trying to incentivize me to hire the minority person instead by letting me jump up 10 spots in the first round. Like, I think if all things are created equal, you're going to hire who you think is going to help the team win, regardless of compensation. And on the flip side of that, the 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 stupid asshole that is taking that arbitrary notion into effect isn't going to have his mind altered by 10 picks in the third round right like donald sterling the donald sterlings of the world are not going to have their their ignorant line of thinking challenged by 10 picks up in the third like they don't care why do they care about that So I think that it misses the mark in what it's trying to do by incentivizing the equal opportunity for people of color to be hired into higher level positions within the front office in these NFL organizations. And I think it's a problem that absolutely exists. And like I prefaced the segment with, I think Eric Bieniemy is the latest and greatest example of this. He absolutely 1000% should have a head coaching job right now. And it's not for lack of trying. The guy has interviewed at several places and somehow isn't a head coach. He has run one of the league's best offenses under tutelage from Andy Reid, and we've seen these guys come out from the Andy Reid coaching tree and be incredibly successful. Matt Nagy, the most recent example of it with the Chicago Bears, took them to 12-4 and in his first season. And then that was, okay, well, Eric Bannemi's going to be the next in line. Doesn't get hired that year. This past offseason, oh, well, surely... He'll get a job this year. Nope, gets passed over for guys like Kevin Stefanski. And again, not belittling the the qualifications of those guys, but Eric Bieniemy, one thousand percent, should be a, a head coach in the National Football League. I, I will close this segment with this, and I have always it's bothered me a little bit when people paint with a broad brush. The, the notion that the NFL is somehow this racist organization, I, I push back against that a little bit because I would first ask you, name one private company in America that has created more minority millionaires in the U.S. than the NFL. 
You can't do it. They make more minority millionaires in America than any company going right now. And it's not arguable. In addition to that, we have, I, I think part of the reason that this has come about and, and reared its ugly head and become more of a talking point in the last couple of years is because of, I think we had the year, what was it, two years ago? where you had, I think, Marvin Lewis got fired, Hugh Jackson got fired, Vance Joseph got fired, and Steve Wilkes got fired. I think that was all in the same year. And boy, they just got raked over the coals for it. But again, let's just take that element out of it. Hugh Jackson obviously was was deservingly fired uh, of the Cleveland Browns job. They should have fired him after the 0-16 season. They shouldn't have brought him back because the writing was on the wall and you could read the tea leaves and you're like, if he gets through this season with Todd Haley and Greg Williams, it'll it'll be an absolute miracle. And he didn't get through it. I think he made it through like, I don't think he made it through October. Marvin Lewis probably should have been fired five years before he actually was. And maybe that's a little harsh. He had plenty of success in Cincinnati. But it was clear that stagnation had set in in that organization and franchise. In Arizona, with Steve Wilkes, it was obvious they just botched the coaching hire. You had the, the a top pick in which you brought in a rookie quarterback. Your roster was absolute garbage. And you brought in a defensive guy that really didn't have a ton of experience. Wasn't one of the defensive guys like Vic Fangio, who was, you know, a no-brainer defensive guy. Like, this guy needs to be a head coach. He was clearly in over his head that first year. And Josh Rosen struggled. And it was just a bad hire. And he was one and done. And then Vance Joseph is like, sorry, he's one of the worst defensive coordinators going right now. And I, I don't understand how Elway hired him out of Miami with the options available to him. I think he did a much better job with Fangio this go around, at least with the defensive guy. But look at look at the Vance Joseph's just track record and just look at the stats. I, I just push back against the notion you can't you have to dive deeper. Like on a topic as serious as this, you have to get the details and the context is so important. And I, I think that this alteration to the Rooney rule is is missing the mark at trying to solve a very real issue. Now, what's positive is that they're talking about it and these conversations are being had and we're trying to figure out a way to be progressive and forward thinking and to move forward so that people of color and people that come from disadvantaged backgrounds, which in the NFL is a, is a vast majority of people, right? that they get the same opportunity in these front office roles and consideration for these head coaching jobs as other people that come from more privileged backgrounds, such as myself, if I were to enter the league. So I think it's a positive conversation. And I think, and and, and I, I hate people that, you know, kind of come down on something without, well, well, what's your idea? Why don't you know, it's real easy to criticize something without having a, a solution. I, I would take a step in the direction of, the Rooney rule right now is to just interview one minority or person of color for each coaching opening, right? That has been the Rooney rule established by the Steelers. Mike Tomlin was a Rooney rule hire. And so what I think that you could do, and I think it would be more, it, it would be, it would be a, a better effort at, at 
solving the issue than incentivizing what incentivizing him 10 picks higher in the third round like who honestly who gives a shit who cares so I I, th- I think uh something you could do to better incentivize that and I th- is to just expand on it. I think that you should have to not interview just one I think you should have to interview like three or five people of color and you have to bring them in each round because they're conducting 10, especially at the head coaching level, which is the main reason this is being discussed, is because uh, I think it's a roughly 20% of the head coaches in the NFL are black, which is too low. And so uh, I, I think th- they're interviewing 10 to 15 head coaches you, you know, for these openings. And you're kidding yourself if they're not. The ownership typically turns over every rock and stone. So force the ownership then with the Rooney rule to interview not one person of color candidate and you can just hire one one off and say forget it. Make it three, make it five, make it a substantial amount of of the interviewing pool that would ensure that if somebody is qualified in the league at a position coach or a coordinator that wants to take that next step, that they have the opportunity to get in front of these teams and do just that. And that's kind of my uh, that's kind of my closing thoughts on the deal. So uh, let me know what you think. I know this is a serious topic. I hope that I uh, approached it in a respectful manner. It, listen, this is this is a problem that has existed in the NFL. And it's, it's very, very, very positive that they're having the discussion and trying to figure out a way to be progressive because you're either getting better or you're getting worse and you're either growing or you're dying in business. So I think that it's, it's certainly positive that they're having the conversation, but the proposed alteration is, is more what I took issue with. So let's move on to the Taysom Hill Glazer report. Uh, Jay Glazer, who's obviously very tied into the league, used to be in breaking news, not so much anymore, but he has, he has friends in high places and he is very close to Sean Payton, who's the head coach. I mean, de facto personnel decision maker for the New Orleans Saints. And he reported that he was told by Sean Payton that Taysom Hill is going to be the guy in 2021. And some background for this, we highlighted it a little bit in the open. Drew Brees is likely going to be done after 2020, coronavirus or not. He signed a deal with NBC to move into the broadcast booth. And what's probably going to happen is Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth are going to be shuffled around a little bit. And... It'll be Mike Tirico and Drew Brees that'll likely take over Sunday night. Is kind of what I've been hearing with all that through the broadcast uh, uh, grapevine. But on the football end of it, obviously the Saints are going to need to replace him. And Taysom Hill has generated some buzz for quite some time. And he's generated a lot of hype. And I think that he's a really good football player for the role that he plays. But I would caution everybody to just relax a little bit. And I don't doubt Jay Glazer's reporting. I am positive he was told this by Sean Payton. I do do, do not doubt what he was told at all. Uh, I think that what he's reporting, he was told. However, I think that also these NFL teams will tell you what they think of a player. Matt Nagy said in the offseason, Mitch is the guy, Mitch is the guy, Mitch is the guy. Well, then he traded for Nick Foles. So is he really? It it feels like you're going to have Mitch win the job out of camp, start him for four or five weeks, bench him since you didn't pick up his fifth-year option. Then you can play it off like, well, we gave him one more chance, and now we're riding with Nick Foles. You, You 
usher out the Trubisky era in Chicago. You use Nick Foles as the bridge guy, just like they did with Mike Glennon, and then you draft the next guy in this upcoming spring, whether that be Lawrence, whether that be Fields, whether that be Trey Lance, whether that be whoever, right? Uh, it, it feels pretty obvious that's what, what they're going to do. And they kept telling us, Mitch is the guy, Mitch is the guy, Mitch is the guy. Well, you didn't pick up his fifth-year option, then you traded for Nick Foles. And the Saints have done the same thing. Drew Brees got hurt. What do they do? If they thought Taysom Hill was such a great quarterback, he would have played. He would have started at quarterback. But no, they made Teddy Bridgewater one of the highest paid backups specifically for that reason. And it was a fantastic move because it kept their season afloat. They still reigned as division champs and they were the three seed in the NFC playoff picture when Drew Brees came back and they didn't miss a beat. And Taysom Hill did not play. And so when Teddy Bridgewater then moved on to Carolina... And they then had another need at the backup quarterback position. Instead of letting Taysom Hill be the two, what did they do? They signed Jameis Winston, a starter in their own division that is young, that has the potential to take over when Drew Brees is done after 2020. If Drew Brees gets hurt in 2020, who do you think is going to be the starter? Not Taysom Hill. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they will make him the starter if Drew Brees goes down. It's possible, but all I keep hearing about is how Taysom Hill is going to be the next guy. Taysom Hill is going to be the next guy. Taysom Hill is 30 years old. He had three blown out knee surgeries coming out of BYU when he was coming out of college all those years ago. He's a good football player, and he credit to Sean Payton and what they've been able to accomplish with him. But this this is more smoke than fire, and I, I, I don't believe for a second that Taysom Hill is going to be the guy in 2021. I, I don't understand the hype on this at all. Now, I'd be interested, like, from a story perspective, I think it's more interesting for Taysom Hill to take over as the full-time starter for a year than Jameis Winston. Like, I've already seen the Jameis Winston song and dance. And Jameis Winston is undeniably entertaining. I certainly give you that, 30-30. But Taysom Hill taking over for Drew Brees, coming, becoming kind of this hybrid wildcat guy, to then becoming just the quarterback, I would be interested to see it. I just don't think there's any, there's any stock in it at all. And I think the Saints have, been, have told us that, that as much with their actions. I mean, don't listen to what they're trying to report to you in the media. They want you to think that, but they're telling you what they think with their actions and their transactions. They wouldn't have, why pay Jameis Winston to, to come in and be the backup to Drew Brees if you're so confident in Taysom Hill? Why start Teddy Bridgewater when Drew Brees goes down if you're so confident in Taysom Hill? And then, well, you know, Zach, that messes up the offense because he had a role and they have these packages. Well, they can't run the packages. If, if Taysom Hill, you know, ends up just being the starter. So they use Teddy Bridgewater as the starter. Well, those packages, I mean, let's be real, folks. It's not like he was even a fantasy-relevant player. It was a gadget thing at best. And again, if you thought he was that good and you thought he gave you a better chance to win, you'd put him on the field more, you'd make him the starter. I, just, I don't buy it for a second, and I don't think you should either. Uh, those are kind of my feelings on that. Again, no issue with Glazer's reporting. I'm sure Sean Payton told him that. And uh, who knows? Maybe even Sean Payton thinks it. But I, I just, 
I, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I don't think so, based on the actions that the team has taken over the last couple of seasons. Um, so we had the the arrest, too. Now, this is more of a story last week. It's kind of evaporated, but I, I just wanted to hit on it real quick because I think it is indicative of the impact of coronavirus, to be completely honest with you. I think that some of these players that are, maybe you would say, bad apples or questionable character guys do not thrive without structure. And there has never been more of a lack of structure throughout OTAs in this offseason ever in the history of the NFL. And so you were seeing guys just get popped left and right. Latimer, Dunbar Baker, Oliver. They were just, I mean, I think it is very, very apparent that when, when the structure isn't there, it's certainly not helping some of these players, and I think it's going to impact teams this season. And you'll be able to tell who the high-character teams are and who has low-character guys on the roster because they they are not focused in getting better. Like we said, like I said in an earlier segment, you're either getting better or you're getting worse as a player. And without structure, some of these guys rely on that. They relied on it in college, and they're relying on it in the pros. And when they don't have that, they're simply not mature enough to live their daily lives on their own. I mean, that might seem harsh, but have, if you've seen the Aaron Hernandez documentary, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And he just could not handle himself away from football. He just didn't have the mental capacity or the maturity to do it. And maturity is an issue with some NFL players. Now, here's, the, here's where I think maybe the league gets a little bit of a bad rap. There are a ton of players, and the overwhelming majority of players are really, really high level. I mean, there are NFL players that are going back to school in the offseason to get doctorate degrees and that have aspirations beyond the league that they work on in the offseason and enhance their lives, right, and make greater contributions to society than just on Sundays. And even the guys that their interest is just football, maybe they don't have, you know, the academic interest outside of the league. Like, I mean, Peyton Manning, high level as they come, right? I mean, the majority of these guys handle their business and they act like true professionals. But like in any league, you're going to have some bad apples. And the Dunbar-Baker arrest warrants issued was, I thought, the most interesting story because you have DeAndre Baker who was taken in the first round by Dave Gettleman and the New York Giants. And you have Quentin Dunbar, who they said, well, you know, they're not going to let him participate in OTAs. That was going to be his punishment. Like, really? Yeah, that'll really show Quentin Dunbar. You're not going to let him show up to virtual OTAs? Great. Th- yeah, that'll really, really make sure he doesn't do that again. And for DeAndre Baker, now it's coming out like, he was a questionable character guy coming out of college, and he's, you know, on the front page news of the NFL offseason, getting in trouble with arrest warrants. I don't want to misrepresent the case, uh, but it was, I think it was like a some sort of robbery uh, or battery or something like that. It, like, not good. Not good at all if you're the Giants. And, and you staked your claim on him so much so that you were willing to spend a first round pick on him when the the people at Georgia had character concerns on him and basically a lot of the a lot of his teammates and now the coaching staff 
is kind of like, yeah, I don't know about this guy. And it's not like he was a no-brainer talent. He was kind of a questionable pick, even from the talent perspective. I mean, he's okay, certainly deserving a first-round consideration, but it wasn't like he was the top corner in the class. And boy, yeah, I don't think it looks good for the Giants. And I don't, I don't, obviously all this stuff has to play out and innocent until proven guilty, that whole thing. But at what point, it's like, you got this guy for five years, even four if you decline his option. We're through year one here, and he's gotten rest on the books. Like, at what point do we, you know, cut him loose, or would we be forced to cut him loose because of public perception? Now, the NFL isn't, and nor should it be, the moral authority in America. That's not their goal. Their goal is to make money, and their goal is to win. So, like, at the end of the day, I know it pains you, pains people to hear this, but they don't care. As, as long as he's not suspended, if he's good, he'll play. I mean, there's it's the tale as old as time. But, uh... It doesn't look good for the Giants and for Dave Gettleman, who who kind of looks like the village idiot right now anyways with some of his picks the last couple years and the whole Daniel Jones thing. Now, I would contest that Davey G, if some of these things were, if some of these picks and transactions work out, he could be looking back in a couple years like, you know, double middles to the rest of the world because they all thought he was so stupid. Like if Daniel Jones pans out and they hit on a couple of these linemen and Saquon is Russian, you know, has, maybe has like a 2,000-yard season behind those O-line guys he, that they draft, and Daniel Jones starts taking off and wins him a couple of division titles. Like, he he might not look as stupid as we all think in a couple years, but this this whole situation, it, it it's not helping them. And I think that it's, a, it's interesting to see this play out in the league because I, I do think that this is an impact that coronavirus is having on the league. I don't know if these arrests or these crimes happen if the if we're in a normal offseason. I just don't. So that'll take us into our next discussion. Uh, kind of roll in. It's, this has to do with corona also. Is the considerations for returning back to play. And we know MLB has, has tried to ramp things up. Things are trying to get ramped up, right? They're trying to start to try and safely reopen the economy. The Major League Baseball has had several meetings. They're in meetings with the Players Association and uh, trying to trying to take every penny, it sounds like, from what I read. But uh, regardless, they're trying to get baseball back. Uh, the other leagues, the NBA, NHL, are, are making plans to resume, to resume their seasons. And uh, the PGA Tour has already come back. I think NASCAR is going to come back here pretty soon. Uh, MMA hosted a fight not that long ago. So... Things are trying to get ramped back up again. And for the NFL, I think that they're playing on NFL versus college football are playing on two completely different fields when it comes to this. Because for the NFL, at the end of the day, it's a business and it is a for-profit organization. And it's it's a really a private company, right? So these guys are getting paid. And as long as they know the risks and have accepted the risks, you're kind of acknowledging it by, you know, showing up. And you're being paid, you're obviously being paid and compensated for whatever risk you're taking. But at the college level, like it or not, they're student athletes and they're 18 year olds and they're considered kids. They're not considered adults. They're not paid. In fact, it's illegal to pay them 
for their accomplishments in the athletic arena before they reach the NFL. Now, we all know the SEC does not follow that, but that is the discussion for another day. They're student-athletes, first and foremost, and while I I think that there will be college football this season, I'm 99% sure of that from my colleagues and coworkers and people that have friends on various coaching staffs throughout the nation, and uh, just everything I've heard has pointed towards optimism to there being football. I don't think that we're really at, at risk of losing football this fall, at least not as it stands right now. Now, again, it's May, but uh, as it stands right now, I don't think we're really at risk uh, of losing football. But that said, there are a lot more considerations to be taken in on the college side than the NFL because it's student-athletes. Now, college colleges need football just as much as the NFL needs to play the games. The vast majority, especially for these these bigger schools and the SEC that don't rely on academics as much as some of the schools out in the Pac-12 do, or some of the more academically inclined schools in the Big Ten or the ACC, the SEC relies on athletics to pay its bills, to renovate its campuses, to give it new facilities. It relies on money from the football program, first and foremost. Men's basketball, too, and women's basketball a little bit as well. But the overwhelming majority of money brought into the school next to tuition and donations is from the football program and filling that sucker up on Saturday afternoons. It is an event. Those college stadiums are bigger than the NFL stadiums. The big ones are. And at, at, at the very least, even the small pow- smaller Power 5 ones are about the same size as NFL stadiums. Uh, so they need to play these games just as much as the NFL does, but they have so many more hurdles because if an NFL player gets coronavirus, it is much different than if a little, little cousin Johnny contracts coronavirus as a redshirt freshman as part of the Ole Miss football program. That is way, way, way different. If somebody were to, God forbid, catch coronavirus and die be, dur- like during the season or be hospitalized, you know, and we all know the statistics on it, people you know that are my age and college age and younger, right, are inherently less at risk than the elder population. However, the chance is still there, however unlikely, that it could happen. And it is the college and the university's job to make sure they have their bases covered when it comes to all that and to protect their kids. Because when you're a parent and you are like, you're kind of giving over your child and his or her well-being over to that coach and to that program for the next four years. And I remember that was a big consideration even when I was getting recruited to play Division Three football for my parents was, was what they thought of the coach and uh, a lot less to do with the school itself because they knew that coach was going to have a significant impact on my life the next four years. And... These universities are responsible for looking out for the well-being of their students, first and foremost. I mean, the the president of the university, the board of these schools, the administrative staff, they can't have their students getting sick and dying. 
especially not for a sport. So I think that the hurdles for college football to jump are much tougher, and they have a lot more red tape to cut through than does the NFL. And it's something that I I was just kind of thinking about, and I thought it would be worth talking about because it's going to be absolutely a, a lot harder, especially as we approach the date, to get college football back than it will be, I think, to get the NFL back. So let's uh, head to our final topic today. We're going to hit the uh, NFC and AFC North for draft coverage. Uh, and let's start off with the NFC North. we got the Green Bay Packers. I won't spend too much time talking about this because you guys heard they were kind of the story of the draft. So they kind of dominated my coverage the night after. But they obviously go with Jordan Love, the first pick. Then they go A.J. Dillon round two, Josiah DeGuara tight end out of Cincinnati round three. Uh, some offensive linemen in the sixth round. They took three offensive linemen in the sixth round. A safety and a defensive end in the seventh round. And they took a linebacker, Kamal Martin, out of Minnesota in the fifth round. Guys that will all likely be backups or practice squad players. I wouldn't be surprised to see one of those three offensive linemen make their way onto the two deep and maybe compete for some playing time this season. But the story of the draft is obviously the Jordan Love pick, and we've kind of covered it ad nauseum, so I don't want to really get into it too much. But the the Green Bay Packers draft is obviously going to hinge on that pick, whether or not he's a success, right? Because at the end of the day, as much as you maybe don't like the A.J. Dillon pick, I know the PFF guys hated on it. I didn't love it either, especially with the needs the team had, what was on the board. But, it, I mean, again, if, he, if he's good, nobody's really going to care. I mean, it's not like they took... Leonard Fournette, you know, in the top 10, like the Jags did. They took him in the second round. The Josiah DeGuara pick was uh, the head scratcher because while they did let Jimmy Graham walk, they have Jay Sternberger, who they spent, I believe, also a third round pick on, who's going to be the guy. They also have uh, Robert Tanyan, Big Bob Tanyan, Tonka Truck Tanyan, is what I call him, uh, as the second tight end too. So that's not a position, an area of need. But there's try, they're clearly moving in, in a direction to try and change the scheme, go with more uh, 12 personnel, one, one, uh, one back, two tight ends, two backs, one tight end, two backs, two tight ends. So uh, he, he fits the need there. They, they kind of want to, I think, use him in a Kyle Juszczyk role. He's more of an H-back is what he was described coming out. So I think the Packers, I, I really struggle with it. I, I don't love, I don't love it. But uh, if Jordan Love hits, that's really all that matters. I mean, I mean, that's really what their draft boils down to. Whenever you take a quarterback, regardless of who else you pick, your draft that year comes down to whether or not that player hits because you're going to have to spend a premium pick to get that player. And therefore, you're going to miss out on other players. Like, I would have loved to see him take Patrick Queen. If you take Patrick Queen, then you still need a replacement for Aaron Rodgers. They've addressed that problem now, and they won't have to hopefully address the quarterback position for 10 plus years, is what they're hoping. So let's move on to the Minnesota Vikings. Minnesota Vikings, I thought, had an awesome draft. Top five draft in the NFL, without a doubt. Now, they needed it because. They, I think, I, th- I need to get in touch with uh, my buddy Colby, who's uh, my, my Vikings fan and my expert on all things Vikings. I believe they lost 10 starters of the 22. And so they need a lot of starters to replace the guys they lost. Whether they cut them, whether they trade them, it's kind of a changing of the guard, especially on the defensive side of the ball for the Minnesota Vikings. They have to completely reinvent 
their corner room because they lost Xavier Rhodes, Trey Waynes, and Mackenzie Alexander all to other teams. Every last one of them is not on the roster. That, that was their top three corners. And their fourth guy, Hughes, I believe has been injured throughout much of his young career, right? So they get Jeff Gladney, and Gladney, I think, will probably compete on the other side of Hughes. Those will probably be the starters next year. That is a very, very young cornerback position that has to compete in a division against Matthew Stafford, Aaron Rodgers, and, well, the Bears' Trubisky Foles. But they're going to have a hard time, and there's going to be some growing pains. I love the pick with uh, Justin Jefferson out of LSU. I think they can use him in the slot, and he's going to be outstanding. Ezra Cleveland from Boise State, I think he's a good player, uh, not a great player. He struggles uh, at times, and I got to watch a lot more of him than I did in the draft process with a training game that I had a week or two ago. And... He he was just he was he was solid. I mean that's that was really my takeaway from him. They picked him in the second round, and we'll just have to see how he develops. They picked Cam Dantzler, who ran just the horrible, horrid forty uh, at the at the combine, and he really plummeted because of that. On tape, he's actually a pretty good player, but the fact of the matter is, if he runs like four six, he's just going to be limited in the NFL because he's not going to be able to play bump and run. Like, they'll just run right by him. I mean, he's, he's not going to be able to hold up in coverage. So uh, we'll see how that pick pans out. If maybe he had a bad day, maybe it turns out he's like 4-5 speed, uh, then I think that he could he could end up uh, having a better career, and that, could, that pick could look really good because he has the size and the length, and he looks awesome on film. I mean, he really does look very impressive on film. I... I I, that was a product of the combine for me dropping it. It's just you do have a ceiling if you don't have speed at the cornerback position, and he was by far the slowest that was that was coming out of the of the uh, top guys. Anyways, there where the where I really thought they hit a home run though was in the mid to late rounds. They get Nate Stanley, who actually funny story. I went to uh, Wisconsin Stout and played football there, and it's in Menominee, Wisconsin. Nate Stanley, the quarterback at Iowa, was a senior uh, at Menominee High School when I was a freshman, and I didn't obviously really know him, uh, but Menominee High School played on our field, and we, Friday nights, before we go out and drink beer or whatever, we would go to the high school football game sometime and watch a little bit of it. And I remember they went pretty far that year, and I remember hearing that they had this good quarterback guy, and I remember our coach tried recruiting him a little bit, actually, too. And obviously, uh, he said, uh, you, you guys can get get bent. I think I'll, I think I'll go to Iowa. <laughs> so uh, they, they pick him. From what I saw on film of Nate, I think he's just a – he embodies the backup quarterback, like C.J. Beathard before him. I think that he's just a solid backup. And if you can develop him in your system, hopefully, you know, you have a guy that you like uh, in your system that can run your offense if your starter gets hurt. He'll obviously never be the starter, or you're you're hoping he never has to play. But if he does, you're hoping that he's the backup on the team for maybe two contracts worth of his career. Uh, I, I loved the Kenny Willekes pick. That was also in the seventh round. Uh, people, you know, didn't love his size or thought he was limited athletically. I think he's kind of a freak, to be honest with you. And he's a badass. Uh, plays really hard. I watched him throughout his whole career. He he gave people fits in the Big Ten. So I think that he could end up outplaying his draft value easily. Um, 
They took James Lynch, Troy Dye, the linebacker out of Oregon. I wasn't the biggest Troy Dye fan. I think he's kind of a stiff in space and struggles in coverage, but I love the James Lynch pick out of Baylor. I don't know how that guy lasted to the fourth round. He's a beast. Came off the edge a lot for Baylor. He's obviously going to be playing uh, the defensive interior, defensive tackle for uh, the Vikings, but I think that he's going to be a good player. He's going to be a starter probably from day one, and you're going to hear about him. Uh, the Chicago Bears, they've drafted a tight end. They now have like 12 on the roster. Uh, Cole Komet, tight end out of Notre Dame. This is the second year in a row the Bears haven't had a first-round pick, and everybody saw the guy they were going to take in round two, or I think it was round three last year, like a mile away. Everybody, at least like in Illinois that I know that's a Bears fan, was like, David Montgomery, David Montgomery, David Montgomery. What did they pick? David Montgomery. Everybody this year, Cole Komet's a Chicago guy. Uh, Notre Dame has a Colt fan base in Chicago. That's just a, a pipeline, you know, kind of like Rudy. But uh, everybody wanted them to take Cole Komet because they need, they need an answer at the tight end position. And they, they signed Jimmy Graham. I don't know why. And they have like 10 on the roster, but they need a more long-term solution to the position. And Cole Komet ends up being their guy. Jalen Johnson, the corner out of Utah, very physical. I think he's going to be a really good corner in the draft. I think uh, if Vic Fangio was still there, he would love this Jalen Johnson kid. Uh, kind of a shame he won't get to be in a Vic defense, at least not throughout his rookie contract. But uh, he's going to be a good corner. He's going to play opposite of Kyle Fuller, you would think, uh, and would take the spot of Prince of Mucamara. Uh, would probably start from day one. Again, uh, I, I don't know what they're... I'm trying to think of the depth of the cornerback position off the top of my head. I think they lost Mukamara and Bryce Callahan. So they they need a starter over there. And so they get Jalen Johnson to seemingly do that. Maybe if he doesn't start from day one, he should take over that spot as the year goes on. The rest of the guys they picked, I don't... I'm not going to really pretend to know much about Kendall Victor at a Georgia Southern or... Darnell Mooney out of Tulane. I don't really know those guys. Uh, classic small school uh, Ryan Pace dudes. But the Detroit Lions, very shocking they didn't pick. Uh, they didn't trade away the third pick. They stand pat. They take Jeff Okuda. I just don't understand how that in, makes you any better than you were a year ago. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't. Uh, you basically replaced Slay with Okuda, and you still have a giant hole at the position. A giant hole. Uh, they then spend the second round pick on DeAndre Swift. Great pick. Uh, a lot of people had him as the consensus best runner in the draft. He was second best for me personally behind Jonathan Taylor. I, th I think Swift is a more complete back than Jonathan Taylor. But at the end of the day, I just like my running back to be the best runner. I mean, that 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 is kind of, I, I, I think, overlooked a little bit in today's game with the Alvin Kamara's, the Christian McCaffrey's that can catch the ball out of the backfield. And Wisconsin, with the style offense they ran, didn't really give him that many opportunities to catch the football. So I think Jonathan Taylor got unfairly pigeonholed into this guy that is one-dimensional. Well, that's just what Wisconsin chose to do. I mean, the guys at Michigan don't really catch the football either, but that's because they're running like the, the Maryland I formation with two fullbacks. I mean, uh, so DeAndre Swift, though, for the Lions is a good pick. Kerryon Johnson, I think, was fine, but he, at the end of the day, I think it's just a guy in terms of his physical gifts, and DeAndre Swift is a special, special athlete that can help out 
in the passing game can be kind of an Alvin Kamara type and run between the tackles. He is a very, very talented back. Again, I had him at second best uh, runner in the class, and it was very close between him and Jonathan Taylor, to be to be perfectly honest. They also got uh, uh, Okwara, Julian Okwara out of Notre Dame, kind of a lengthy guy that uh, had a little bit of injury concerns, and the production wasn't always there. But he has the traits, and I, I, I like him out of Notre Dame. He's got a lot of playing time. I've watched him play for a while, and uh, he, he's, a, he's a good player. It w- wins on the defensive line a lot. Uh, under, underrated pick, I thought, was Logan Stenberg, the guard out of Kentucky in round four. Love that pick. I think he's going to end up being better than Jonah Jackson, the guy they took at guard in the third round. Stenberg is just kind of a badass man, and I think he's going to be a good player in the league and probably start for them at some point. So let's move to the AFC North, and then we will uh, go ahead and wrap up this podcast. Start with the Baltimore Ravens. They took my guy, Patrick Queen. I mean, they, they crushed the draft again. I mean, like the like the Vikings, easily top five, top five draft in the NFL. They just get so many good players. Like, they take Patrick Queen, the linebacker out of LSU, who I thought was the best true linebacker in the draft. Obviously, Isaiah Simmons probably the better player, but he's not a true linebacker. He's just, he he is not. Patrick Queen, you can stick in the middle of the defense and say, "Go get him, big boy." And uh, Patrick Queen's gonna do it. You, you look at the long line of guys that have come out of there the last couple years. Patrick Queen, I think, is gonna be you know just the, just the latest and greatest. And then they get uh, J.K. Dobbins in the second round. I mean, the Baltimore Ravens ha- have had this rushing attack with Mark Ingram at the end of his career and Gus Edwards. And uh, who was the other running back that got a lot of playing time for them? His name escapes me right now. But J.K. Dobbins is going to walk right into the facility and be the best runner on the roster. And when you combine him with Lamar Jackson and the tight ends they have and Hollywood Brown, man, that offense is going to be so scary. I mean, think about... Hollywood Brown on a jet motion, all the misdirection between J.K. Dobbins, Lamar Jackson, and Hollywood Brown in the backfield in this option game that they're going to run. It's going to be kind of insane. And then they get Justin Matabuke in the third round, uh, defensive tackle out of A&M, uh, another name that you've just heard for years that pe- most people think, yeah, he's going to be okay in the NFL. He's going to be all right. So he'll pro- they'll probably turn him into a starter here in no time. And just like that, they got three three starters in the first three rounds, and Devin Duvernay, the wide receiver out of Texas, has insane speed, and he, he fits the same mold that Hollywood Brown does, and that uh, Boykin did to a degree. It's just, they're, they're just drafting guys that fit their system, and that have a skill set, and they're building strength on strength, and you just have to love what they've done, because then they went back and they get Malik Harrison, another guy. I wasn't high on him, but a lot of other people were. And so let's say Patrick Queen doesn't work out. Well, maybe Malik Harrison does. Maybe they both work out. Then they went and drafted two guards back-to-back. Tyre Phillips out of Mississippi State and Ben Bredesen out of Michigan. Both both guys that were pretty highly coveted, again. So uh, I thought they did a nice job. And then just the icing on the cake, they take James Prochet in the sixth round and Geno Stone in the seventh round. Geno Stone, as a, as a scheme fit, for the Ravens is perfect. And I thought Geno Stone was actually a little underrated coming out of Iowa. I don't think he got enough credit. And he I watched him in the Iowa Penn State game again for a training game I did for PFF a couple weeks ago. And he jumped off the screen to me. 
He was all over the place, nose to the football, competes in the passing game. While I don't think he has the physical traits you you maybe want to see in a first round pick in the secondary, uh, it competes, I think is the accurate word. Like he's not just effortlessly sticking with these guys like Okuda is. He has to fight to, to kind of stay with the receivers, but he contributes in the run game. He's a hard hitter. He is fundamentally sound. He's assignment sound. He plays with good instincts. Love Geno Stone in the seventh round. They get James Prochet at, at SMU. I think he put on his like little YouTube pop tape and then tell me he's not going to be a good wide receiver for the NFL. I mean, James Prochet, one, one of my one of my favorites, uh, to be honest. So I think the I think the Ravens just absolutely crushed it. I think they got like six six starters out of this draft. I mean, it's it's insane what what they've been able to do. Uh, Pittsburgh Steelers didn't have a first round pick. They drafted Chase Claypool out of Notre Dame. I was a little harder on him, and I went back and watched him again for a PFF game after uh, the draft had already happened. And I get why the Steelers like him. And nobody drafts receivers better than the Steelers. And the fact that they like him, I think, tells tells you something. He has the physical ability. And I think I downgraded his production a little bit unfairly because of the limitations of the Notre Dame offense and how it was run. A lot of times when Ian Book is dropping back to pass, like very rarely does he throw in rhythm how the play is designed. He is definitely one of those guys that is always, he just runs around. And uh, that forced them when they really wanted to get the ball into Claypool's hands, they had to just run him on drags and stuff. And I think that he has the physical capability and tools to be much better than we've seen him be in college. Like, I think his best football is ahead of him. But the risk is we never saw it at Notre Dame. Whether that's his fault or not, they just didn't use him in that way. And it's hard to envision him, you know, betting the farm on a guy to succeed in that, in that fashion when he's never shown it to you before. So in addition to that, then they go and get Alex Highsmith, outside linebacker from Charlotte. Can't pretend I know anything about him. The McFarland Jr. guy out of Maryland, I know a little bit about him. Fourth rounder, I, I I wouldn't expect much. Antoine Brooks, another guy out of Maryland. They must have scouted Maryland heavy this year. I guess that is pretty close to Pittsburgh. And then Carlos Davis out of Nebraska. I, I got to be honest, I didn't love their draft. Claypool pick, I think's Okay. Uh, outside of that, though, I, I don't I don't know how many starters or how many good players they got, but we'll see. Uh, they have been able to hit on some of these guys, like Deontay Johnson has become a stud out of nowhere. Where is he out of Memphis or Buffalo? I think Buffalo, and he he's he's going to be awesome. Already is awesome. So uh, they they find these guys out of nowhere, like maybe this Alex Highsmith guy to out of Charlotte. I mean, I've never seen him play, so maybe they turn him into a stud player. This Anthony McFarland guy, I think, will be a good third down back for him. Good change of pace from the the bruisers they have on the roster with uh, uh, James Conner. So uh, a nice job there by the Steelers. But uh, yeah, they didn't have a lot of picks. They had only six, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Two, three, four. Yeah, they only had six picks. So, uh, and I and I just don't know how many starters they got out of it. The Cleveland Browns. Uh, I thought they had a really nice draft. Really, really nice draft. They get Jedrick Wills, the offensive tackle out of Alabama. There's an argument to be made that he is the best tackle in the draft. He his issue to me was nastiness uh, and 
ability to drive guys back in the run game. And he kind of fixed that in 2019. He was more nasty uh, in the run game. And he played right tackle. But that was to his blind side. So I, I think he'll transition to left tackle. He is a technician, man. It is just so hard to get around him into the quarterback when he's in pass pro. I thought he was the best pass protecting uh, tackle in the draft by a wide margin. I mean, he is so polished and uh, he's just a really, really darn good football player. I ended up putting uh, Werfs, the Iowa guy, just a tick ahead of him, but Jedrick Wills right behind him. I think the Cleveland Browns got an absolute steal at pick 10. I also think they got an absolute steal with Grant Delpit at pick 44. I mean, if I was running the Cleveland Browns, these would have been my two picks probably. I mean, honestly, with the value that was there, I had a first. I think I had a first round grade on Grant Delpit. If not, it was a six four, which is the highest grade you can have, if not a first rounder. So uh, Delpit, I think, gets unfairly crushed for some injury concerns and his tackling. But the guy was like a lock top fifteen pick two years ago, and all of a sudden they get him at pick forty four, and it became clear he wasn't going to get drafted in the first round throughout the draft process. And I think he's a first, I think he's a borderline first round talent. I think he's the best safety in the draft this year. The guy has great instincts. He can play at the line of scrimmage. He can cover. He he is the best coverage safety for sure. Now I think Xavier McKinney does a nice job, nicer job playing down in the box. I, I I will agree and concur there. But Grant Delpit has that ability too. He just needs to work clean up some of the tackling issues. He's he has the the instinct and the physical ability to just be a stud. Uh, at the next level, and I think he's going to be a good one for the Cleveland Browns. They also get Jordan Elliott, uh, true son, Missouri kid. Um, I wasn't the biggest fan of his game, to be completely honest. I, th- I think he's, I think he's uh, going to be a, be an okay player, but we'll have to see on him. Uh, Jacob Phillips, linebacker out of LSU. You know, he actually started over Patrick Queen for the first half of the season. And uh, I think there's something to be said for that. Now, Phillips' problem is he he is a stiff. Like, he is not going to cover anybody. But he can fill holes, and he is physical, man. Man, he is physical. And uh, he can tackle. So uh, he, he serves a purpose on an NFL team for sure. And he would, he'll be an excellent special teamer, if nothing else. Harrison Bryant, the tight end out of Florida Atlantic, uh, won the John Mackey Award this season. Had all the production in the world. And they get him in the fourth round. I mean, I thought they did a great job of capitalizing on value in this draft. Let's move on to the Bengals. They take Joe Burrow, uh, followed by T. Higgins. That obviously is going to uh, be what we look back on and decide whether or not this draft was a success or not for them. But what they did in the mid-rounds I thought was very interesting because they took two linebackers I really liked. And Logan Wilson out of Wyoming and Akeem Davis-Gaither at Appalachian State. Two guys that are athletic freaks, that have speed, that can cover, that can go sideline to sideline. Maybe a little undersized. Logan Wilson transitioned from safety, and Akeem Davis-Gaither is just inherently undersized. But they fit the modern NFL prototypical linebacker nowadays that that we're transitioning to. So uh, that'll do it for our podcast. That'll do it for our draft coverage. I got to go back and check what division we haven't done yet. Have we not done, I think we still have to do, it's either the South or the West. I think we got to do the West still. But uh, regardless, we will have that division breakdown for draft coverage next week. And that will wrap it up pretty much for draft coverage. Otherwise, we'll just be talking about stories. Maybe we'll do some fun segment ideas like some top tens, ranking some guys. Uh, 
you know, kind of gearing up. As long as there's stuff to talk about, we will keep the podcast humming. If you have anything you'd like to hear, slide into our DMs at the at the Blitz on the Balcony Twitter account. You can slide into my DMs at Zach underscore Zook. You can hit us up on Instagram. You can drop in the Bruise on the Balcony voicemail line. You can drop in one of their accounts. I, I severely, I, like I encourage uh, your guys' engagement because I, I, at the end of the day, this show's for you, and I want to make it as good as we can. We did a little bit of a longer show uh, this time, and we thank you so much uh, for making me a part of your day, and uh, we'll see you next week.